Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this special edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. If you're a regular Drug Truth Network listener, you've heard me say this before, but in today's program, we're going to examine the evidence that the drug war is a scam and that the evidence is written 1,000 feet high. It's kind of a multi-purpose show, if you will. For one, I'm actually in Seattle as this show airs in your locale. Secondarily, I want to point out to the uh, listeners that we do have seven-day-per-week programming from the Drug Truth Network called the 420 Drug War News, and that's where we're going to draw from this week to prepare this program. So we begin with the 420 report from January 14th of this year. Graham Boyd of the ACLU speaks at the King County exit from the War on Drugs conference. With the War on Drugs, the exceptions are there. What Thurgood Marshall um, bemoaned in, in a dissent in, in, in a Supreme Court case as the, as the drug war exception to the Bill of Rights. Congress passed a law saying that public transit ads that dealt with the issue of drugs could only favor the government's position. If, you're, if you have a bus ad or a subway ad or, or any kind of ad that's on a, on a public transit system, if the ad said drugs are bad, current drug policies are good, you can do that. But if you wanted to run an ad that said, we don't like current laws, we would like to change current laws, that was censored. You couldn't do that. Now, it's hard to imagine, in some ways, an easier case to win that, that on First Amendment grounds, and the courts you know, did the right thing there. But the fact that Congress would even do that is just astounding. Congress also passed a law saying that when the District of Columbia ran a medical marijuana ballot initiative, that the votes couldn't be counted. Again, unimaginable. How could you – I mean, what a blatant assault to such a fundamental thing. The only example I can think of in recent history is that a dictator in Nigeria, when it looked like he was going to lose the rigged election, um, seized the ballot boxes and didn't let the votes be counted. But that's something that a, the majority of the members of Congress felt would be okay. A case called Wren established uh, what I think is a completely radical proposition, which is that when police officers stop you for, a, uh, say, a traffic violation, they don't need to actually care about the traffic violation, the broken taillight. It's perfectly fine for them to be stopping you for no other reason but to be able to get into – to get near you to look into your car to see if their drugs are there, to bring a drug-sniffing dog in a separate case. That's not considered a search. So basically the erosion of your fundamental right to be left alone. And so what I want to conclude with is just where that right comes from. When the founding, uh, the founders of, the, of this country wrote the Fourth Amendment, they were concerned about the idea that British troops were going door-to-door, house-to-house, to see if you had contraband in your house. Right? And, the day, and that day, the contraband was rum, tobacco, and molasses, and tea. 
um, see if, if you pay taxes on. But they didn't need to suspect that you had done anything wrong. They could simply insist on coming into your house to see if maybe you had done something wrong. And the Fourth Amendment is supposed to be the opposite of that, that as long as you don't appear to be doing anything wrong, you get left alone. From the January 29th report, we hear from Gary S. Becker, world-renowned economist and Nobel laureate. Professor Becker, this drug war is economically uh, uh, a fiasco, am I right? Absolutely. Um, uh, the, it's, it's been costly, not very, uh, largely ineffective, and the cost, if you add it up, not only in dollars and cents, but effects on neighborhoods and countries has been an enormous. So I think we have to recognize that, and, we, and we've been reluctant to do so. If I dare say, the reluctance of those in power, the legislators, to stop and take the time to look at this situation is outrageous, is it not? Well, it's, I, I wish it were different. You know, I'm accustomed to political changes being often very difficult, and... Um, uh, I think any objective analysis of the benefits and costs would show the costs of this war far exceed the benefits I indicated earlier. Now, the uh, politicians usually respond to the electorate, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the population has been opposed to the war on drugs, and that's the group we first have to educate, and then I think that will influence the politicians. You know, you do a poll, uh, they, they do scripts, Howard polls, etc. Uh, people in, in regards to mar marijuana and or medical marijuana, and the numbers are always um, hugely in favor of a change. What, what does it take to reach the federal level? They, they recently said that uh, sick and dying patients can't have marijuana. Yeah, well, I think it's often the problem with public policy that you may have a, a majority in favor of a particular change, but it isn't as important to them, and a minority is very vocal and active who, who, who put more pressure, and, and they can have more influence even though if you did a, a, maybe a straight referendum or something of that type, uh, let's say the marijuana would be legalized for at least a variety of purposes and the like. So I think as an economist who's been active for many years and seen important changes in public policy in areas where it seemed would not be possible previously. I still believe that the logic of uh, decriminalizing, legalizing drugs is so strong that um, it w we will see an important change. But it takes ac activities by people like you, yourself uh, and academics and others at all different uh, levels to really uh, push on this issue. But I'm not I'm not pessimistic uh, uh, because I think it takes time to affect any significant change in the public policy, and, this, and, and that's what's happening, I think, in the drug case. Next up from the February 5th show, we have Peter Christ, one of the founding members of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Plus, uh, you'll get a chance to name that drug by its side effects. And that is when you institute a blanket prohibition, when you just prohibit something, you give up all your ability to regulate and control it. LEAP believes that a regulated and controlled drug marketplace, no matter what it is, and that could be from Schedule II prescription drugs all the way to over-the-counter sales and anything in between, a regulated and controlled marketplace is safer for society, defunds the gangsters who are now running that marketplace. And that's what we've done. We knew in 1933, just like we knew in 1919, that alcohol was very dangerous. 
But what we realized in 13 short years was that as dangerous as alcohol was, letting people like Al Capone control that marketplace did not make the better problem better, but in fact added new problems that didn't even exist before. Gangsters, a whole distribution marketplace, smuggling, and stuff like that on the part of the gangsters. So what we did was we decided to take that marketplace away from the gangsters and put it in a regulated and controlled marketplace. That did not uh, eliminate our alcohol problem. We still had to deal with our alcohol problem, but we chose as a society to deal with it as a health care and an educational problem instead of a criminal justice problem. And that also doesn't relieve anybody who harms somebody else's property or somebody else from the, the reach of the law. We still deal with those problems, but that's a small problem compared to the problem we dealt with before. And LEAP believes that legalizing our drug marketplace will have the same effects on our society. It will defund the gangsters, and in this day and time, it will also defund the terrorists. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Depression, delusions, hallucinations, paranoid fears, clinical depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, tardive dyskinesia, and psychosis. Time's up. The answer, Ritalin, another FDA-approved product. My name is Angel Rach. I'm a mother of two teenage children, and I fought all the way to the Supreme Court for the right to use the medicine that saved my life. I've been permanently disabled for 10 years. The medicine that gave me my life back and gave my kids their mom back was cannabis, also known as medical marijuana. To learn more about medical marijuana, contact Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or on the web at mpp.org. Law Enforcement Against Prohibition has a great new video available at leap.cc. Once again, if you're a long-time listener, you've heard me say it before, that the drug war is an abomination before God. From the February 26th show, this is Charles Thomas of the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative. For all the politicians who are always concerned about, about religion and moral values and so forth, they were able to see that on this issue, on the mandatory minimum issue, uh, the, the organized religion overwhelmingly is, is on the side of drug policy reform. I, I want to talk about those who stand in support of eternal drug war. It is their policy that kicks in uh, citizens' doors. It is their policy that ensures this black market exists. It is their policy that makes sure that overdose deaths are more likely to occur and that our children have easier access to drugs. Let's talk about the moral position of this drug war. Absolutely. Well, uh, we believe that it's wrong to, to punish or coerce anyone for, uh, for what they put into their bodies unless they're doing something that directly puts another person in harm's way. But that ultimately, if someone's using drugs and, and has, if someone has a problem with drugs, uh, that, that should be a health issue for, for themselves and their families and their, their health care providers and as far as their uh, spiritual uh, uh, components to, uh, to addiction and recovery. Uh, it should be something that, that people address through their faith communities uh, or even just through their communities in general, that, that there are ways that people can, can truly help each other uh, without needing to arrest and punish people. And that even if someone believes that any drug use is inherently immoral, 
it's still wrong to punish someone uh, simply for doing something believed to be immoral. Religions have positions against all kinds of things. Uh, various things considered sins by different denominations can include masturbation, dancing, uh, swearing, and so forth. And, uh, and no one is uh, suggesting that people should be arrested and sent to prison for any of those things. And if you look at all the ways, as you mentioned, that the drug war actually makes things worse, that should pretty much uh, show that, like Jesus said, is you judge a tree by its fruit. And when you look at the negative consequences of the drug war, that, that further shows that the drug war is wrong. U.S. Congressman Dan Burton. But I have one question that nobody ever asks, and that's this question. What would happen if there was no profit in drugs? When the congressman asked that question, there was no one in Congress who could answer in any fashion whatsoever. From the March 10th, 420 report, this is Drug Truth Network reporter Phil Jackson on the Bible and drug war, plus a little reefer madness. I got a new god now. And now another black perspective on the drug war. Prohibition's got to go, for my Bible tells me so. One thing about black folks, we sure are a God-fearing people. Which is why the black church figures so prominently in black leadership today. So, what does the Bible have to say about marijuana? Plenty. And I'm going to quote you chapter and verse, so get out your Bible and read along. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Notice, it says every herb, not just some. Oh, but doesn't the Bible teach us to abstain from things like drugs? Well, let's turn to Acts 15th chapter, verse 28. There we see that only four things are prohibited. Meats offered to idols, blood, things that are strangled, and fornication. Marijuana is not on the list. But marijuana prohibition is addressed in the Bible in 1 Timothy 4th chapter. And it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Well, that sure sounds like the drug war to me. Oh, prohibition's got to go, for my Bible tells me so. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. Next, from the February 15th show, this is a Drug Truth Network editorial featuring yours truly. The drug war is not for the children. It is for cowards who wear badges. It is for charlatans who wear black robes. It is for politicians afraid of losing your vote. Prohibition is a scam that robs our society at every level. Prohibition ensures that every year 
our law enforcement community expends hundreds of millions of man-hours busting little Johnnies for bags of reefer. Hundreds of millions of man-hours searching trunks, under car seats, rifling through ashtrays. The effort wasted on the drug war is enormous, outrageous. Cops, sheriffs, deputies, DEA, CIA, FBI, Justice Department, state police, rangers, U.S. military, Interpol, Customs, Border Patrol, IRS agents, Forestry Service, the list is endless of those involved in fighting the first of the eternal wars, the war on drugs. Meantime, the child molesters, the rapists, the murderers, and the terrorists only have to worry about law enforcement agents not currently engaged in drug traffic control and ongoing busts, escorting pot possessors to jail, testifying in court, or working on some 18-month undercover drug sting. Tens of thousands of man-years slaying their dragons who have longish hair, colored skin, or a bad attitude. Behind closed doors, these politicians, judges, and law enforcement personnel agree that the drug war is a failed, hopeless policy. Yet when the corporate media puts that microphone to their mouth and that camera in their face, they revert to cannibalism. In order for them to thrive, they can't back down now. They insist on maintaining the lie, and so they continue devouring our children's lives. Drug prohibition is not a minor issue. It is the issue. Drug prohibition is the means, the mechanism, by which bigotry still thrives in America. Drug prohibition is the little lie that could, very soon, destroy our nation. The lies of drug prohibition are somehow sanctified, allowed through general consensus to exist for the children. I work daily to end the madness of drug war. Someday soon, I hope I can say proudly that I dared to stand against the illogical, deeply entrenched, onerous, dangerous policy of drug prohibition for the children. There are thousands of active drug reformers in the United States. There are millions of Americans who should be reformers. Won't you join us? Please visit endprohibition.org. I honestly don't know what more I can do what greater voice I can bring to the airwaves. Next, from the February 24th show, we have Maria Salavitz, author of Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids. And yet, you know, these kids, you know, smoke a joint or two, and off it is to boot camp. Yes, and let's talk about these boot camps. Uh, I'm relieved, I think, your book indicates that this, this uh, method of tough love is not as predominant, not as widespread as it once was, but these boot camps and these wilderness camps still exist. Tell us a bit about those, please. Yeah, um, they basically, um, there's about 100 to 200 organizations that practice what I call tough love, and what I mean by that is that the idea of the program is to break you down emotionally and physically until you admit total powerlessness and then build you up in their image. Um, now, I should say, in fairness, some wilderness programs claim to, you know, be kind and gentle and be just like, you know, camping out in the woods. The problem is, since there's no regulation, any program can sell itself as anything. So there's a really horrific story in my book where um, some very you know, nice, decent parents wanted some help for their kid, and they thought they were sending him to a Boy Scout camp, essentially, and what it was was a really tough boot camp, and over the course of several weeks, he starved to death and slowly died of a 
ulcer that would have been treatable, but they didn't believe his complaints even when he was um, urinating and defecating on himself and was losing about 30 pounds, and he died. If these kids are not penitent, if they don't uh, adopt the credo of the organization that has them under control, that they are ostracized, alienated, and dehumanized. The problem is that the programs have the attitude that these are all lying, manipulative, scummy addicts, basically. And so if the kid complains of a health problem, problem oh he's just faking in order to try to get home and in fact this most recent death that happened in florida in january of a 14 year old boy um what basically came about he apparently um could not continue exercising and the the guards or drill sergeants or whatever you want to call them kicked him and put ammonia in his face and punched him and smushed his head and slammed him against the wall and he died I urge the listeners whose children may be creating sparks within the family over drug use to think twice and three times before utilizing most of these treatment centers. They're just out to make a buck. From the April 4th program, this is former DEA agent Sele Castillo. And I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years, uh, retired now, and uh, trying to educate the public in, in what's going on with the so-called war on drugs. Well, Sele, it seems that every day there's uh, killings, uh, people being found in car trunks or burning on the side of the road around Nuevo Laredo. Is that an example of uh, the worst of the drug war? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, the worst is when it spills over, which it has already, uh, spilling over into the U.S. Uh, right now we just had, uh, uh, according to my information and informant who worked for the United States government, uh, Killed and murdered in Star County. His body was dragged and then was burned uh, on recognition. He's one of uh, many informants that are being killed and uh, people that uh, corroborate with the uh, with the U.S. authorities are are, are getting uh, getting killed and assassinated here in, in South Texas. I, I want to think that this will change. That somehow one cartel will will gain predominance, or that. Uh, I, I guess idly hoping that the U.S. can do something about it. But it, this will continue as long as drugs are illegal, will it not? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this will continue uh, forever. Uh, the drug war has never worked. Uh, we've been doing this for over uh, 40 years, and uh, we tried the John Wayne approach, and it has not worked. Uh, law enforcement is not working and has not worked in the past. So um, basically the answer to the war on drugs has got to be education, prevention, and treatment. And uh, if you don't have a demand, uh, you don't have any drugs. But uh, uh, according to uh, a lot of the middle schools, there's a lot of kids still using drugs, and uh, there's more of it, uh, easier to get, and so forth. So we haven't made a dent. I uh, got the intelligence that uh, one of the major cartels came over into the United States and went and uh, knocked on three um, uh, U.S. Customs guys on uh, on, the, on their homes and... Uh, Told to cease and desist from uh, working with the, the different cartel, or else their families are going to be killed. And, and, and needless to say, the, uh, within a week or so, they had asked for a transfer out. So that's how strong the cartels are. They're they're going to be coming in here and into U.S. And uh, you know, right now the corruption is so high; it's up all the way to the United States Attorney's Office. 
From the May 4th, 420 Drug War News, this is Philippe Lucas of the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, plus an example of drug war torture in the U.S. of A. Well, I think that unfortunately in Canada right now, we're moving a little bit closer towards an American-style drug war. We've got a new conservative government that's proposing a mandatory minimum sentencing similar to the U.S., and that's scaring many uh, uh, people who are involved in drug policy reform. Myself, as a distributor of medicinal cannabis, it's rather worrisome because they're talking about having mandatory minimums even for uh, cannabis distribution, and um, I don't think they're going to be differentiating between medical and recreational distribution at that point at all. Um, yesterday, we really saw the uh, polarity of cannabis uh, prohibition in Canada um, or, and drug prohibition in Canada. In uh, Outside of Toronto, um, a smokeasy called uh, Up in Smoke Cafe was busted by the Hamilton police. They had 20 people lie on the ground, came in with their guns drawn and tasers drawn and arrested four people because during the 420 celebration, this organization had given away uh, some joints, I think, to activists to celebrate 420. And yet, on the other side of the country, in British Columbia, we had uh, new Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan say that he wanted to move towards the legal distribution of all illicit drugs uh, before the Olympics get to town in uh, 2010. And so that would mean controlled access to everything from liquor to heroin to cocaine. He's willing to explore these kinds of what might be considered radical but really are common sense uh, approaches to, uh, to ending this war on drugs that's been so damaging to all of us. Each year in America, 1.6 million people are arrested. Their search, their frisk, their possessions are taken, and seldom, if ever, is a working tape recorder left undiscovered by these officers. When Tennessee law enforcement officials showed up the home of Lester Seiler, a first-time convicted drug dealer out on probation, they asked his wife and eight-year-old son to leave. They didn't know that Lester's wife had turned on a tape recorder in the kitchen when Lester exercised his constitutional right not to sign a consent search in his house. These officers spent the next two hours torturing him. They beat him with bats and guns, held loaded guns to his head, threatened to shoot him, dunked his head in the toilet, burned him with lighters, attached his testicles to a battery charger, threatened to cut off his fingers, and threatened to torture his wife. Then they arrested him for evading arrest. This is your drug war in action. Man, I've been all going down nice to you. You know, I'm saying, it's a Eugene, I'm going to break your fucking finger if you don't sign it. I'm going to tell you, it's to get high. I don't give a fuck. It don't make no difference which way you go. Go fast, go down, something like this. You sign this son of a bitch right now. If you don't sign it, I'm going to knock the hell out of you. I ain't signing it. I ain't fucking with you no more. Now sign it. We're going to close out today's show with a portion of the June 1st 420 report, which features Eddie Ellison, the former head of the Scotland Yard drug unit. People are suffering a great deal because of heroin addiction, and the use of injection rooms uh, would be beneficial. We'd allow them to bring them within the scope of services and allow people to help them. Uh, This isn't new. It was suggested two years ago with the Runciman Commission, about a year before that, our uh, Home Affairs Select Committee made that recommendation. Uh, most agencies have been supporting this. Uh, it's our politicians that uh, haven't found the political answer to uh, launching it at the moment. Now, if you will excuse the term, but I see many of these politicians as having, if you will, quote, made their bones by being tough on crime, by being tough on drugs. Uh, it's tough for them to back down, is it not? But 
Is there incremental progress being made? The organizations that are lining up to look at harm reduction and treatment as opposed to prohibition are growing in number. There is no political party that does not have somebody within it that is suggesting an alternative to prohibition. But the numbers are still small of people willing to speak out. We, we have politicians that have lined up to be hard and tough in the crime field and therefore hard and tough in the drugs field. And it's going to be very difficult to have a sea change in that, but it is underway. I think Mr. Ellison is absolutely right. There is a sea change underway, but it's a very slow tide. And why is it so slow? Because of your silence in this regard. I urge you to please visit our website, endprohibition.org. There you can link up with many of the great drug reform organizations on the planet. And as always, I remind you, because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of cannabis. Ha, ha, ha.